We're going to turn together to First Peter chapter 3, continuing our series. And as you turn there, let me pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we're, as we've already prayed, so thankful for the power of your name. We're so thankful for the greatness of your love, for the everlasting, unfailing arms of our Heavenly Father. And Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. They are, as your word proclaims, sweeter than honey. They are more to be desired than earthly riches. They are truth. They are sustenance and they're life to our souls. And I thank you, Lord, that you yourself have proclaimed that your word will never return void. But as it's proclaimed, as it's sent forth, it will accomplish all that you desire it to accomplish. So here we are. Lord, help us to be fertile soil. Help us to receive your word and to allow you to do the works that you desire in our hearts. Help us love you more. Help us see you more, Jesus. You are the one who is the desire of nations and the lover of our souls. Give us listening ears this day, Lord, to hear what you're saying to us. We pray, glorify your name as we gather. King Jesus, we pray together. Amen. Amen. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8 is where we're up to, where we're going to continue from this morning. Remember, we've spent a few weeks looking at the area of marriage. Interesting timing, isn't it? That was before there was any word of a plebiscite or a postal vote or anything else. So isn't that just like the Lord to get us ready, get us prepared for the season that we're in? But we took some time not just to talk about the need to uphold biblical marriage, but to celebrate it. God's incredible design, a man and a woman together reflecting his love and his passion and desire for the church, this covenant relationship that he's ordained and that he upholds as being good and right. That's where we've been. And I don't intend to, I, I know as I said, we're in the midst of a postal vote. I don't intend to speak to that too much. But I want to make a couple of comments, not so much about marriage. We've covered that. You can grab the podcast if you're interested in having a listen to what we have to say there. But more, how is it that as believers we can respond? Not just to that particular scenario, but... You can't seem to turn on the news, can you, these days, without there being some great events, terrorist attacks, a lot of hate and division and anger across this planet in which we live. So this is not only valid, I believe, in terms of our perspective on current things that we're facing as a nation, but things that we'll face as individuals and things that are happening in a global setting. And the Word of God always has plenty to say to us in all of these different areas. So let's read together. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8, he starts off and he says, Finally. Now when you read that word, don't get too excited. Every good preacher has at least two or three finalies. And we're only actually just over halfway through this little book. Really, probably a better translation would be in summary, or to summarize, or to remind you of a few key points that he has already made. Because that's what he's going to do here. Most of what he'll say is not new, 
got their reminders, remembering that we've covered a whole lot of ground, a whole lot of different aspects of life, of what grace is. Peter says he writes to exhort, to declare, to proclaim true grace, how that radically transforms us. So in summary, he says, all of you, verse 8, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you will call that you may obtain a blessing. Let's pause there at the end of verse 9. So verse 8, first of all, sounds very similar to other passages in this uh, epistle written by Peter, where he commands us to love one another, remembering that an emphasis all the way through has been not just that grace is something that we get in terms of inflow, but grace that gets a hold of us and there is a, an outflow or an outworking in our lives. And one, measures of that, one measure of that that Peter always points us to is the degree to which we love one another. He continues, he says, pursue love of one another. So that theme is there, but there's a couple of other words that we haven't come across. He talks about having sympathy, remembering he's talking in the context of the body of believers to this group of people, believers in Jesus. He says, have sympathy, have compassion, have tender hearts. Some translations say have mercy. So he's not just talking about love, but he's talking about the need that we have to have sympathy, compassion, and mercy for one another. Remembering that verse 9 is going to go on to talk about a context of there being evil around. And he's not talking theoretically there. He's not talking about to a people saying, there might be a day when some evil happens around where some stuff happens personally to you. He's talking to a people who are in the midst of it. And he's going to go on in this letter to talk about persecution, how we respond, how we react when things don't always go as we have planned them to go. So he's saying in that context, recognizing that there is evil around, we live on a broken planet, there are broken people, no one in this room, of course, you're all excused. But there is stuff that happens. And so remember the importance of being a compassionate, sympathetic, mercy-filled, loving, burden-bearing people. And I'll perhaps illustrate it this way. I was thinking about some of these themes this week. And I know you often hear me refer to our Baker family farm, our little 10-acre property that we have. And we haven't had many animals, but we have enjoyed over the 12 months that we've been there having a little flock of chickens, which has been a joy. Kids have loved them. And when we first got there, that was one of my first projects to build them, not only a fox-proof, but a, a bomb-proof, tribulation-proof, everything-proof chicken house. And it has survived well for the first 12 months that we've been there. And in recent months, I've decided to do a big extension, the idea being that we'd had a rooster and I thought that it would be nice and the kids were excited they thought well we can have some little baby chicks so we built a whole extension a second section to the chicken coop which was joined together and unbeknownst to me I tried my best maybe I got a bit lazy I don't know I thought it would be sufficiently fox proof and it turns out that it wasn't so this week we have unfortunately experienced some fox barbaric acts of terrorism in our little chicken coop they left a, a wave of destruction behind there was one duck and one little chicken that survived everything else was gone 
So it's not the first time we've had issues with foxes. It is out where we now currently live, but we've had chickens for years and had a couple of lots of chickens that we've lost to foxes in the past. But it's certainly the first lot that we have had with children who are really old enough to know and to understand, remembering that most of these little chicks we got when they were little babies, and so they were all named after Disney princesses. There was Rapunzel, there was Snow White, etc. We had these two little ducklings that we got when they were babies, and they became an adopted part of the family. They were the cutest little things. They too had names. I think it was Sparkles and something else. And then we had one rooster, very graciously donated. I'm very sorry, Peter and Sue, Father Marks. Okay, the brothers are in the freezer, so sounds like we prolonged his life a little. But I went to, the, to Peter and Sue's house when they had a few roosters and I took Lily because it was my day with her and she got to pick him out. So she chose and she chose this fine specimen of a bird, named him Henry. It's been Henry the rooster and she'd go every day down to check on Henry. I can say that Henry did get a very decent burial. I'm sure he fought valiantly. But unfortunately, he didn't make it. And so as you can imagine, there was a lot of tears. There was a lot of wailing. I know there are far greater issues and problems facing us in the world. But when you're five and seven and nine, you lack that perspective. So there's a lot of grief and emotion. I'm pretty sure most of Royala and probably some of the surrounding suburbs had no doubt that something had gone on in our household. And I tell you that story for this reason. Not to depress you and to try and garner your sympathy for my situation at home. But you know, you never want to go through difficult times, do you? You don't. As a family, as an individual, as a nation, you just don't. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we could just, I often say this to my wife, let's just buy a little camper van, we'll find a little corner of the beach somewhere, and we'll just live in a bubble. You know, nothing will bother us. We'll just ignore the rest of the world. We'll spend our days just surfing. And I mean, it sounds good, doesn't it? But it doesn't really matter where you go. There's always going to be trouble that will seek you out. Catherine's saying that doesn't sound very appetizing at all. Me or the camper van or the sand. Let's move along. The truth is, you never want bad things to happen. But let me tell you, it's when things don't go according to plan that a family comes into its own. You wouldn't want to go through difficult times, but I tell you, you learn more, you grow more in the midst of those difficult seasons. You discover what being a family is all about, being there for each other, comforting, having sympathy. We've had some of the most incredible discussions over this journey of chicken trauma in our house. We've had some of the most special family moments even this morning, my oldest came in and she gave me a big hug. She said, Daddy, I'm still just so sad. And I just comforted her and said, don't mention to them anything about the chickens, okay, if you see them. Still a bit of a sensitive topic. But the reality is this is what Peter is saying. He's saying, guys, I know that you are well aware that there is evil around. There's difficult times. But let me tell you, there is a kind of people that you can be. A people of sympathy and compassion, bearing each other's burdens, binding up each other's wounds. You weep together, you comfort one another, you encourage, you lift up, and you see how the beauty of his grace shines like a beacon of hope in the midst of our deepest darkness and trouble. 
That's the calling that he's saying all the way through this book. Remember, grace does that. Nothing else can do that. But we have this call as a people to be that kind of a family. That is our call. Not that we ever want to go through hard times. No one put their hands up for that. But when we do, we're here. We've got to be a people that have each other's back. We've got to be a people that know what it is to love one another, to have sympathy, to have compassion. Anybody who thinks they can do the Christian life alone is deceived. We need one another. I need you. You need me. We need each other. Now, it would be very easy for me to camp there for the morning. Would. I've preached that sermon before. It preaches really well. It's good. It's a good message. But that's actually not our focus this morning. That's not even the introduction. We're getting to the introduction. So let's look at verse 9. That's his first opening line. Finally, let me summarize. Let me remind you of the need to love each other, especially when times are evil, when things are difficult. You get to be that kind of people. Not so much that you have to, but you get to be a people where his grace works and shines brightest in the deepest darkness. Let's be that. Don't leave this room before you find someone to encourage and to bless and to love upon today. Verse 9, Peter says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Let's pause there for a moment. This word evil literally means evil in a generic sense. Just talking about the chicken and fox scenario. It's nobody's fault. It's just the fact that we live on a planet where stuff happens. This word for reviling is very different. It has a, uh, a personal application. It means to be criticized in an abusive or angrily insulting manner. There's two pictures there. Peter is saying when there's evil around us in a general sense, when there is personal attack, when we're criticized, when there's stuff that's coming against us, the response is the same. And let's just think about it. Before we look at Peter's response, what's our natural human response? For all of us, when there's stuff around us, when there's stuff that happens to us, it's normally either to fight or to flee. So we had some girls, just back to my chicken and fox example, one more time, then we'll leave it, we'll move on. But we had one of my girls, and in the midst of her wailing, she said, Daddy, that's it. My little ducky's gone. My life is over. My life cannot go on. I don't know how I'm going to survive. Is there any point I want to throw in the towel? And often that can be the case. I had another girl whose response was different. She was certainly emotionally at the start, but then she wanted to come down and she wanted to find out how these foxes got in. And then she said, that's it, Daddy. We've got a mission here. We've got to take out these foxes. She said, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to find them. And when I find them, I'm going to rip it into a thousand pieces, a million. Shotgun. shotgun. Where's the shotgun? I can report I have now got my gun license. I haven't yet purchased the shotgun, but it's coming. So there is often a, a sense of wanting to fight, isn't there? There is. Fight or flee. What do we do as Christians? Well, Peter gives us a third response. So he says, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. And let's be honest, if that was all, that would be enough, wouldn't it? If we were just not to respond, that would be enough. But he takes another step. He says, but on the contrary, but in the opposite spirit, here is what you're called to do. You are called to bless. We are called to bless, for to this you were called. 
called to be a people who bless. Now that word literally means to pronounce a benediction. It means to declare in order to confer or invoke divine favor upon someone, something, a situation. It means to look in the face of evil, of insult, of ridicule, whatever it might be, of stuff coming at you, and declare and proclaim the plans and the promises of God. Now, this is an incredible privilege, and just as we've had in many of the words of us being focused on what the Lord's called us to do, you know, there's two realities, isn't there? For that actually to be an applicable scripture, two things have to be in play. Number one, God actually has to be able to make a difference in our circumstances and our surroundings. And number two, he has to be willing. Otherwise, why would Peter say, pray this? Pray this, but know that you know, God doesn't really want to make a difference. He's not really the God of the city. You know, it's, it's gone. There's no hope. Or actually, he wants you to do it. He is able, but he's not going to do it anyway. You know, keep going. Good try. Pat on the back. But God really doesn't want to make a difference. There has to be two realities that rise up, even in the midst of difficulty, that say, you know what? God is willing and God is able and we are called to bless. We are called to bless. So I want to look at very quickly, that's the introduction now, three points, they'll be really quick. I want to look at this reality of blessing. What does this tell us about the heart of what we're called to do? Remembering the context of the blessing is in the midst of evil and it's in the midst of reviling or insults, or stuff that just personally is coming against us. First thing is this. It shows me so clearly that our mission is a mission of redemption and not resistance. Redemption and not resistance. Blessing is important because the heart of grace, the heart of the gospel, the heart of our God is redemption. Let's look at these two aspects, redemption and resistance. First of all, resistance. You see, we live in a world where resistance is our modus operandi. This is our goal. This is where we're at in not just our country but different countries. It's all about resistance. Everything in us wants to just resist. This is what I believe, and I want to resist against this group. And then this group says, well, this is what I believe, so I'm going to resist against this group. And then we have the other group who wants to resist against the resistors who are resisting against the resistors. And it's not working with the most divided, segregated society, certainly that I can remember in living times, where people are resisting and clashing. You see, the problem with resisting as a modus operandi, as our goal, as our mission, is two things are required to keep up the wall of resistance, fear and hate. We've got to remember why it is that we either fear or hate the other opposition. It's fueled. Resistance fuels fear and hate resistance will never work somehow we got it in our heads that the, the sign of a, a strong and healthy nation is having groups that can resist the hardest they can overcome they can resist against in a way that pushes forward their particular agenda resistance is never the answer and we stand as believers with this unique perspective of our mission is not simply resistance our mission is redemption redemption and i want to talk about how that works but first of all let's just see this so you don't take my word for it alone that the heart of the biblical story is redemption 
think about a few different analogies. First of all, let's look at the Bible we have here. We've got two chapters at the beginning of Genesis that set the scene, the creation, creation of man. And then from chapter 3 onwards, which is the fall of man, we see one thing that is central to this whole entire story. And it is summed up in the word of redemption. This whole thing, the whole story, God's purpose and plan is about redemption. And his redemption is so incredibly complete that it's not just that we come to the cross, we find forgiveness, salvation. If that was all, then that would be enough. That would be enough, be worthy of our worship for all eternity. But it's not just salvation, it's that we leave the cross as sons, as daughters, reconciled with relationship restored to our heavenly Father. Redemption is central to the biblical narrative. The gospel message is always redemptive. And just look at its outworking. We have a Bible that is full of redeemed lives. Murderers who become missionaries and preachers. It's full of adulterers, thieves, blasphemers, God-haters, whose redeemed lives are turned around to reflect and proclaim the glory of God. The one thing that you can know without any shadow of a doubt as you read the Bible is that the grace and the redemption of God works the most powerfully in the lives of those who are most in need of his redemption. Who recognize, God, I need you. And he says, will you wait and see and you watch how this grace redeems you. We could look around the room. I would happily testify each and every Sunday of the redemptive power of God in my own life to redeem and restore. We would have literally hundreds of years worth of testimonies in this room alone of the redemptive power of Christ, of the gospel in our lives. See, I want to encourage us with a couple of things. First of all, if you're facing circumstances right at this moment and you think, well, how on earth is the Lord going to turn this around? I see stuff around me. There's stuff happening to me. All you've got to do is look at his word. Romans 8, 28. What does he say? He says, and we know. That's my favorite three words in that particular scripture. And we know. We don't, we don't doubt. We don't suspect. We don't vainly hope. It says, and we know that God will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we know, we know with all certainty because we've seen it, we've experienced, we've seen it all around us that he is a redemptive, redeeming God. Central to the gospel is redemption. That would have been a good point for amen. We'll move along. This is the reason why we must preach, we must live redemption and not just resistance. Let's look at a couple of examples. We're facing this marriage postal vote. A lot of people, their response is we've got to resist, we've got to resist, we've got to resist. Now hear what I'm saying here. Is it important for us to vote? Absolutely. Biblical marriage is, is so wonderful. We want to vote for it, we want to encourage it, we want to hold it up as God's standard. It's God's plan for us, for humanity. But we don't want to get into a men mentality that says, here's what we've got to do. We've got to resist. We always need to be going a step further and looking at, well, how can we redeem? I'm praying into 
redemptive moments in the midst of this in a nation. I'm praying for redemptive moments in relationships, discussions I have in our city and our nation. I've been encouraged with a few already. It's early days. One thing that's really blessed me has been seeing some of the pastors, particularly from bigger churches in our nation, come out with some wonderful statements. Now, not every statement that's been issued has been wonderful. There was a great one, for example, yesterday from Brian Houston, pastor of Hillsong. If you haven't read it, look it up. Wonderful statement. Talking about marriage, talking about the plan and purpose of God for our nation, for society. You know, I don't remember there being a time, certainly in recent history, in our nation where churches have been so outspoken just about scriptures, about the importance of being biblical people, about God's plan. It's excited me. I'm encouraged. Hopefully that encouragement sort of catches a little, a little contagious. So I'm so encouraged to see that. I'm like, God, this is great. I'm not just praying that the church rises up to resist. I'm praying the church rises up to redeem and the Lord would turn us around and use it for his glory, the glory of his name, that people would see Jesus and see his plan for humanity. Here's another little moment, just a little example that blessed me in the midst of a difficult circumstance and situation. Some of you would probably be aware that there was a rally that happened in our city Saturday before last. Mr. Arthur Connor was involved in organising it. Probably some of you were there. And it wasn't a good rally in that it wasn't big, but there was a group of Christians there. And then there was a, a group of Christian haters. I should say it wasn't even a Christian rally. It was just a rally that was about um, safe, the safe schools policy. So there was non-Christian concerned parents. Then there was a group that just wanted to go out of their way to make trouble, to um, criticize, to slander. When groups from the other side got up to speak, they'd interrupt and they'd shout them out. People who were there, I had family members, I wasn't there myself, said it was just the worst and most disappointing display that they'd seen in our country in their lifetimes, was the general feel. It was really, really was eye-opening and disappointing. And you say, well, how on earth is the Lord going to redeem that sort of situation and circumstance? Well, let's be honest that that is often, when you make a stand, the initial response. And it was strange from my point of view to watch this happening because I had not only people from church but I had family members, I had cousins and their kids who were all part of the, the safe school policy campaigning for that and then I also had family members and cousins who were part of the other crowd. They were the ones yelling the insults so you can imagine the next family wedding is going to be interesting. Yes I have a lot of cousins, it's kind of like the Australian mafia at times, a lot of cousins everywhere. But this is an issue that divides even families. And yet in the midst of that, there was one instance where a particular guy, a young cousin of mine, he was there, he'd been a part of things, he'd seen other family members. And to be honest, he was a bit embarrassed and ashamed. And so he went out of his way to contact some of my other family members to say, look, I just, I want to sit down and have a talk. I want to chat. And I thought, isn't that just like, Lord in the midst of something that's very difficult that's messy that's horrible isn't that just like him to use it as an opportunity for one young person to be encouraged and it's my prayer in my family pray for my family and I'll pray for yours not just that we can resist but that there can be moments of redemption that there could be open doors like no other not just talk about marriage but to talk about the glory of the gospel 
the power of the cross, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, his plan for humanity. That brings me on to the second point very quickly, which is what we have before us is not just a problem that needs solving. We have people that need saving. This example has been so important for me because so often when it comes to this sort of issue, we have and I have this view of it's the enemy system. It's the lobby. It's this impersonal group of just this agenda that's coming against us. And it's so easy to forget in the midst of our desire to solve problems that these are actually people that need saving. My cousin, he is a great guy. I love him to bits. He's genuinely a wonderful guy. He might be a a little bit led astray. He might be not walking with the Lord at the moment. But he is someone who desperately needs to know Jesus. We don't just have problems to be solved. We have people to be saved. So easy, and I've seen this in the church time and time again, we get distracted by making problems our mission and not people. Jesus never said, go into all the world and solve all the problems. He said, go into the world, preach the gospel, make disciples. Show them the glorious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then you watch how change lives, then change a nation. See, it flows on. All that I want to say, and and again, hear me, I'm not saying that we don't need to focus on laws. I think we need to stand up for rights. I think that's important if the Lord leads you to be part of a rally or write to politicians. Whatever it is, none of that is bad. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that there is a focus that we never need to lose, that Jesus didn't come just to change laws. He came to change lives. That's his mission. Let's not make it about solving problems at the expense of saving people. If our only hope is in the laws of the land, politicians in our legal system, we're always going to be in trouble. But if our hope is in the gospel, the glory of the Lord Jesus and the power of cross to save sinners, to redeem and transform, we will never be disappointed. Number three, really quickly. So let's make it about redemption. It's our message message to be about his redemptive plan. It's our mission to be about saving people, not solving problems. And I want to remind us that our, our heart is always to proclaim a message of hope, not hate. See, blessing is a declaration of hope. We've said it already. It's a reality of saying, you know what? God actually has a plan for our nation. Do you believe that? God actually has a plan for our lives. God actually has a plan for even those who are coming against us. God actually has a plan for the evil that is all around us. And if we believe that, then we can stop finding all the reasons to resist against and start finding all the, the reasons to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem and see his name exalted in our nation. Let me just read you Jesus' mission statement that he read from prophet Isaiah as he began his ministry. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Excuse me. You notice something in there? 
There's not much room for hate, is there? There's not much wiggle room in there. There's glorious, undeniable, unstoppable, unquenchable hope. This is the message of the gospel. Hope for the hopeless, the hurting, the broken, the homosexual, the Pentecostal, the addict, and the everybody. We are all just in need, just as in need of the message of the gospel. Jesus didn't come just to give us helpful philosophies. He didn't even come just so we could resist, be our little happy club with our philosophies and stand in opposition to anyone who would disagree. He came and he died. He gave up his life. He became sin for us to then rise again so that he might offer those who were dead life. It's the most glorious message that ever could be told. And we get to play Part. We have this beacon of hope, a hope that shines brightest in the midst of the deepest darkness. And we've been given this call to bless. To bless. What does it mean? It means to look for that plan and purpose of God to redeem. Even a horrible rally where there's mess and hatred and whatever happens. I'm going to proclaim, I'm going to believe that he's willing and he's able. I'm going to speak into his purposes and plans. I'm going to remember that there's not just problems to solve. There's people who need to be loved, who need to meet Jesus. And I'm going to be a carrier and a bringer of hope. What if we grabbed a hold of that? The world would truly be a different place. Let's pray. I don't know if there's someone who can come and play keys as we conclude. I want to pray for us in a moment, but just as we conclude the service, there's a group of people who I'd really love to just pray with this morning. We did this in the early service, and it just was a really anointed, special time. But as I was saying in the the earlier service, I don't exactly have the right words to describe it, but I've had a sense all week that there's people who, for whatever reason, the only way I can describe it is... It's not like you're hopeless, but it's like you've just given up hoping. It's like you've resigned yourself to, you know what? Things are never going to change. This is just how it is. It's just the way my life is. It's just the way the world around me is. We've bought into that lie for whatever reason. Whether we're like, well, God doesn't care about me. He's not big enough. He's not really able. doesn't really have a purpose and a plan for my life. He can't redeem this. He can't redeem these mistakes I've made. He can't redeem these things that have been done to me. And I want to remind you that there is a God of all hope. Every little bit of hope comes from Him. And His promise is that He will fill us with hope. So much hope that it overflows. So if, if any of that in some way speaks to you, I just I want to pray and the prayer team will join me. I want to bless you with hope, a rising of hope, a resurgence of hope to anchor yourself into the one who has promised and is faithful. He's a rock. He's as certain as the morning sun that rises. He's faithful to the end. 
There's nothing beyond his power to redeem and to restore. And I would hope that each and every one of us left this place full of hope. Regardless of anything that's going on for you personally, it would be so overflowing that it spills over to the lives of those around you this week. So if that's you, in a moment come forward. Let me pray for all of us. Lord, I just, I just pray that you'd encourage us in this area of being a people who bless. We don't want to just resist, Lord. We want to redeem. You're a redemptive God. We don't want to just solve problems, Lord. We want to see people saved, people encountering your grace. We want to always be bringers of hope. And I pray, Lord, that whether it's in families, whether it's in conversations, the workplace, whether it's in events and functions that happen in our city, our nation, even if it's online, wherever it might be, Lord, would you help us to be a people who bless, who pray, who press in to see you redeem even the hardest of circumstances, who see the glory of the name of Jesus exalted over our city. This is your city. We are your people. And we're so excited to partner with you with all that you desire to do at this time, at this moment in history. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.